I had this image of who my first son would be. I had this idea of him, you know, playing soccer and going to Harvard. And, and you know, the universe had a different plan. What's up, Harvard peeps? This is Crescent Muhammad and... I'm George Fathery. Hey, and we are happy to contribute to this momentous occasion. So, George and I were not particularly close in college. I mean, I knew you, but like, you know, we weren't like besties. I feel like we're besties now. I actually thought we were close in Harvard, but apparently <laughs> not as close. We weren't as close as I as I thought we were, but I'm I'm thrilled to be close now. But I knew you and I liked you, so that's big. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> so, the journey to Harvard. What was it like for you leaving? Wait, were you are you from Chino Hills? Was that it? Close, close. <laughs> I'm, I'm technically from Chino, which is actually very different from Chino Hills. Chino Hills is where the fancy people live. When I was growing up in Chino, Chino Hills was just the hills that we looked at from Chino. Um, so I, I grew up in Chino. And, you know, very serendipitous how I ended up going to Harvard. I got in trouble as a junior in high school. Huh. I called someone a name that I should not have called her. Wow. And got sent to the principal's office for that. I got a Saturday work study. And I remember, it was actually the assistant principal. It's a sister. And I remember sitting in her office and she told me, she goes, don't worry, this won't impact your chances of getting into Harvard. And that was honestly the first time in my life I had ever heard of Harvard. Are you serious? And it was the first time I had ever heard that somebody thought that I might be going there. Wow. So I remember I did my Saturday work study, and then I told my mom, I was like, what's this Harvard thing about? <laughs> so that's how, I, that's how I ended up going. I, I actually remember I got accepted senior year, and the, you know, the, the acceptance package came. And mm -hmm. I said, Mom, you'll never believe this. I got into Harvard. And she goes, well, where is that? Wow. I said, it's in Cambridge. She goes, you're not going to Europe for college. Wow. Yeah, that's like, I mean, that's that's what growing up in Chino gets you like. How about you? How'd you end up, how'd you end up going? <laughs> okay, I, I did know about Harvard. <laughs> okay. So I am from South Bend, Indiana. You know, Harvard was my dream school. That's where the rich white boys went. And more so just because that was the top school. You know, everything I read is like, this is the top school. But honestly, I was going to Notre Dame. My sure. father had gone there. My mother used to work there literally five minutes from my house. I spent right. summers out there doing either academic programs or sports programs. So, yeah, I was like, I'm going to Notre Dame. But Harvard's my dream school. So I was like, I don't have anything to lose by applying. Mm. But that part of the process, I go to my guidance counselor and they're like, you don't have applications for Harvard. Like, what are you talking about? Crazy. Right. So I had to contact the school and say, can you guys send an application to my high school? That's how I got the application. Filled it out, obviously. Got my recommendations. Didn't tell anyone. Told no one I was sure. applying. Get the acceptance package. You know, I get in. I talk to my mom about it. And, you know, she's excited for me. So once word got out at school that I had gotten in, I later found out people in my class, not a lot, just a small number, I'm assuming, we're betting that I actually wouldn't, either wouldn't go, or if I went, I wouldn't graduate. Haters. Oh my God, this is my introduction to haters, okay? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. for, right? And I was just like, fucking assholes. But yeah, but I went, and when I went for a visitation weekend, I wasn't sure, like real talk, because yeah. I was like, okay, look, clearly everyone here is smart. 
but can y'all party? <laughs> I had a great weekend. I was like, oh, okay, bet. Like I can be here and I can work hard and I can play hard. And that was what's important to me, so. I remember visitation weekend. I had just visited Stanford. We mm-hmm. fly up to Stanford. It's like probably 87 degrees. It's beautiful. It's sunny. There's people <laughs> playing Frisbee like on the yard. I fly into Boston. It's raining. Oh, of course. It's cold. Of course. I show up to check in and they tell me like, oh, we actually don't have your, did you, are you sure you RSVP'd? And in retrospect, <laughs> like, I don't think I did. Uh, so, so look, so my, so, you know, they tell me, they said, well, hey, thanks for coming, but we actually don't have a spot for you here. Wow. They call Alvin Bragg. Look at that. Who was head of BSA. Of course he was. Who was a sophomore that wasn't a freshman, was right. a sophomore. So they end up saying, okay, we found a place for you to stay. It's up in this place called the Quad. So that was my introduction to that. Harvard Prefresh. Staying with Alvin Bragg. Who is now doing big things yes. in New York. Yes. Which is, I love it. That's awesome. The quad. So, but anyways, it seems like it worked out for both of us. I think so. Yeah. 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 No regrets. So one of the reasons why I called you lawyer of dope black shit is because uh, you saved the Ebony archives. Ebony magazine, FYI. You know, what I'll say is uh, I had the honor and the privilege to be the lawyer representing the J. Paul Getty Trust. Okay. When it acquired the photography archive of Jet and Ebony magazine out of bankruptcy in, in 2019. Okay. And... Um, you know, look, I mean, how I think about this, and, and I hopefully, like, you know, other folks listening to this, coming back to the 25-year reunion, we're at a point in our lives now where kind of experience and opportunity are, are really intersecting in a, in a powerful way. Yeah. And that's what happened for me is, mm-hmm. you know, I was a, a partner at a law firm, and we got a call from an important client who was interested in preserving the photography archive of Johnson Publishing Company, which published Ebony and Jet Magazines, among other publications. The photography archive is comprised of four and a half million images. Wow. It's four and a half million images. It's insane. Only about a million of which have ever been seen publicly. There's, There's literally over three and a half million images. Like these are negatives and contact sheets. Like pictures that never ran in the magazines right. no one's ever seen but, but spanning from like the 40s yeah, on right yeah. he started in 1942 so mm-hmm. it's basically it went from 1942 till about 2019 god so the photography archive documents over eight decades of black american history which is really american history absolutely right? <clears throat> you know there's these iconic images that you've seen of our you know, celebrities and civil rights leaders and athletes and entertainers. But then there's also very quiet and intimate images that you see of of people who we, we, we've we kind of seen under the bright lights and on the big stage, but this is kind of them in, in a room in their home or, mm. or them in a in a hotel room and some very powerful images. So anyways, so I had the <laughs> the great honor and tremendous pleasure of leading a, a team of very talented attorneys we had 72 hours oh, shit. <laughs> to to execute this transaction, which included kind of qualifying to bid in a bankruptcy auction, doing our due diligence, okay. negotiating a purchase and sale agreement, Oof. negotiating closing documents, making an appearance in front of the, the bankruptcy court. And I'm so glad you stayed a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> me, me, me too, although it took me a little longer to, to get there. 
But look, I'll tell you, I initially was pulled into the transaction as, you know, as, as kind of not the lead, as someone more to advise on, on certain aspects. And what happened was the deal moved so quickly that as we were trying to put a team together, mm-hmm. I just kept taking on more and more responsibility. So, so were you the only black person on the team uh, of color? I was the only black person on okay, the team. Well, no. I was probably the only person whose whose family read the magazine. That's what I'm getting team. at. <laughs> but um, but I remember, like initially, I was like, okay, why don't you take a look at the agreement? We're going to get like some other you know attorneys to kind of help on this. And so I'd go through and I'd make comments and I'd have ideas and questions. And so I'd send them. And it was basically like, I don't know, 24 hours in when I realized, oh, shit, this this is my deal. <laughs> like, there's nobody there's right. nobody else showing up to like, I'm leading this thing. Right. I'm up at three in the morning reading this stuff. Right? And what struck me at that moment was like, A, just, again, gratitude for kind of the training and professional preparation I had had to kind of put me in the situation and and to feel confidence that I could, that I could successfully navigate it. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing that struck me was like, look, I work on deals all the time and sometimes the deal gets done infrequently. The deal doesn't get done. Mm -hmm. What struck me Crescent was not executing this deal is not an option because this is invaluable never to be replicated evidence of our human existence and experience. Well, I'm so happy that they recognized that, right? They totally did. Yes. And so they successfully acquired it with the help of the Ford Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation. As soon as we won the auction, I hopped in an Uber with, uh, actually with the bankruptcy trustee, and we, we went out to do a visual inspection of the archive. It's about 20 minutes outside of downtown Chicago, over in South Side. South Side. <laughs> it's a very modest building. You And the first thing you realize is like, holy shit, we paid $30 million for this? And, <laughs> like, we got to get some security up in here. And so you go up, and it's it's the entire floor of this building, and it's just bookshelf after bookshelf after bookshelf after bookshelf filled wow. with these boxes of of photographs. And like I said, like the majority of these photographs have never been seen. One of the most powerful things that I saw in the archive was I saw a box, and on the box it said Malcolm X, Ooh. and I was like, oh shit, okay, right, 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 oh my god, oh my god. So I put put my white gloves on. I open the box. <laughs> I'm expecting to see pictures of Malcolm X. Right, yeah. Like my, you know, my idol, my mm-hmm. icon. Yeah. I opened this box in Crescent. Inside this box, it was not pictures of Malcolm X. Okay. The box was filled with photographs taken by Malcolm oh, X. That's right. He always, he did have a camera with him frequently. Yeah. And these were photographs that he took of black men mm. who had been beaten, shot, and killed by Chicago police. Wow. And he, in the early 1960s, was documented. I mean, you know, we look at what happened with George Floyd, mm-hmm. right, just a couple of years ago, and, yeah. and and we see how the cell phone with the video camera has become basically the most powerful civil rights Absolutely. tool. Absolutely, yeah. But Malcolm X in the 1960s was documenting the relations between black men and the police, and he was sending these images to the magazines to be published. Mm. And so, again, it just, to me, it's a reminder of how powerful and how important it is that this archive has been preserved. Right. And and just the gratitude to the J. Paul Getty Trust for, for stepping up to lead the acquisition. I so, love it. Cool. Another win is 
you legitimately got reparations for a black family. And like, like on a big scale player. <laughs> we're, we're, yeah, we're, we're working on it. You're, you're referring to the work, uh, my representation of the Bruce family. Yep. And for, for the folks listening who aren't familiar, I'll give a, a brief history. Willa and Charles Bruce in the early 1900s moved from New Mexico to Southern California and they purchased a, a lot of coastline property in what is now the city of Manhattan Beach, which is one of the most exclusive and most expensive beach communities in, in California. Mm-hmm. But back in, in 1912, they purchased a, a lot right on the coast and they put a stand. And this was a stand where black people who came to use the beach could buy a soda pop mm-hmm. and a sandwich. Mm-hmm. They had some customers come. They made a little money. A few years later, they added some dressing rooms where folks could go and, and so change and put on their bathing suits. This section of the beach was for black people. This is, where, right? yeah. this is where black people go to the beach in Southern California. And, you know, more people came. The spot got popular. And after a few years, they were able to buy the adjacent lot. So okay. now they own two lots. Nice. They built a two-story building that was really kind of the destination for uh, for black people in Southern California if you're going to use the beach. And people... Because right, we didn't have a lot of places we no, could go. No, it was not. <laughs> it was not, We were not welcome. Um, limited. <laughs> and so in the early 1920s, what you saw is there were wealthy black families would come from San Francisco, mm-hmm. from St. Louis, to go to Bruce's Beach. Right. And as you might imagine, not everybody in the city of Manhattan Beach was fired up about this. <sighs> And so going into the 1920s, really kind of started probably about 1916, there was a lot of harassment. There okay. was a lot of intimidation. Black beachgoers would have their the tires of their cars slashed. Wow. Uh, the neighbors would put up fences so that people couldn't access. At one point, a group of men shoved a mattress under the building and set it on fire, oh trying well. to burn the building down. Yep. The KKK had, had rallies and, and set out pamphlets. And so there was a massive intimidation effort. But guess what? Bruce's Beach just got more and more popular. Wow. You know, as the beach became more popular, some of the white neighbors in that community got more and more frustrated. Mm -hmm. And they eventually hatched a scheme. Now, this was the early 1920s to have the government take the property via imminent domain. Sure. And what they said was they said, well, we need to build a public park. Ugh. And I've looked at maps of the area back in the early 1920s. And what's amazing is like, it's just vacant land as far as the eye can see. There's no building. But we need this area. We need the park right here, (laughs) right where the the Bruces have their their successful business. Fucking A, man. And so in 1924, uh, Manhattan Beach initiated imminent domain proceedings. And in 1927, the property was taken from from the Bruce family. At the same time that year in 27, the Manhattan Beach City Council passed laws forbidding people from opening similar businesses along the coastline without city council approval. Right. So we're going to stop this from happening again. That's right. And so when I look at this, and this was 100 years ago. Right, yeah. This episode really tore the family apart. Eventually, the family left the state of California. I mean... They moved back east... Yeah, I mean, and you're fighting. You're fighting the neighborhood. You're fighting the government. Like just that's that's right. And the generations they grew up, and when they grew up, what they were told was, "Don't talk about that. Wow. That's not our land. Um, that's something 
bad that happened to our family. That doesn't belong to us. Fast forward 100 years, the property was taken by the city of Manhattan Beach. It was transferred from Manhattan Beach to the state of California because the state wanted to preserve the coastline. And then in the 1990s, the state of California transferred the property back to the county of Los Angeles. Okay. Back in 2018, a county supervisor heard the story and she said, well, wait a minute, who owns the land now? And they said, well, the county does. And Mm. to her credit, she said, well, we ought to give it back. Wow. And so I represent the four living descendants of Charles and Willa Bruce. And we, for the past year, have been negotiating the terms of the return of Bruce's Beach to the family. It is the most complicated uh, transaction I've ever worked on. It involves... Uh, land use issues. There's very difficult tax issues related yeah. to, to, you know, income tax. Um, there's legislation that we needed passed in wow. order to allow the state to permit the county to transfer this property. As you could expect, not everybody's as excited about this as you and I. Of so not. we knew going Whatever. in that there would be litigation. People would try to stop this. And sure enough, someone's trying to file a lawsuit. So we're battling the lawsuit. Right. At the end of the day, I'm confident that hopefully by the time we're all together (laughs) at reunion, this land will be returned to the Bruce family. And again, we talked earlier about this, just this amazing intersection of experience and opportunity. And I feel so blessed that I was at a spot in my life where professionally I had kind of the skills to be of service to this family. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my God. See, he's he's amazing, y'all. He's amazing. Okay. On my end. Yeah. Um, What's been going on? Yeah. So, I started a talk show. It's amazing. Thank it's you. Amazing. Thank you. Uh, it's currently still a labor of love, but it is called the Madness Collective. That's where I go to get caught up on current events, what's going on in the world. Exactly. Yeah. We cover headline news politics and pop culture and all the ratchetry in between. Um, <laughs> and when we when we started it, like, I don't even want to tell you when, but it's been a while. At the time, I was like, oh, wow, there's sometimes there's a lot of crazy stories happening, right? And I was like, let's talk about that. That's fun to talk about. Then, you know, a certain person came into office and every day was a crazy story, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> you guys were doing like triple shifts Oh my God, show, right? right? So I was like, okay, dude, it's, it's like all madness all the days. time, right? Law firm days. <laughs> right, you're working law firm hours. Seriously, I'm like, no, we can literally every hour, we can have a, a, an episode. And so um, we had put it down. We had, hadn't been doing it for a while and then pandemics, you know, happened. And we brought it back because now technology is different. Everyone could be in their own space and just do the show. Yeah. And so, yeah, so we're we're keeping it going. It's Friday nights, live. Like I said, it's a labor of love right now, but I do. I love it. Like, it energizes me, and no matter how tired I am. And that's the thing. It's like, like I said, I don't have a problem working hard if I'm working hard on something that means something to that's me, right. right? That's right. And then also, I actually have a show, an idea for a show about art. And mm. the reason why I have an idea for a show about art is because George and his beautiful wife, Azita, have a wonderful and amazing art collection. Thanks. Like, I feel like there's a thing about, you're like, oh, I have I collect art. And you're like, okay, well, I don't understand it. I don't get it. But, you know, being in your beautiful home and just seeing, like, the artists that you guys have brought to your home, yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, now this is starting to make sense to me. I get it. So how did you guys get started with that? You know, it's interesting. We are, like, the most unlikely art collectors. Like I, I don't think I don't think I'd ever been to a museum growing up. Neither of us 
have any artistic ability whatsoever. <laughs> I can't I can't draw a straight line. Well, your younger child does. <laughs> yeah, no, they do. They do. You know, look, we got into art not because of art, but it was about supporting black people. It was about supporting folks who were pursuing their dreams. You know, I ended up meeting somebody probably six or seven years ago who who was into art, who mm-hmm. is into art, mm-hmm. and he invited me to museums and and gallery openings and we started doing studio visits we would go in and visit artist studios and i remember one young brother that we met a amazing artist and i asked him i said well how do you how do you support yourself Mm. (laughs) and he said he said through selling my art right and i said well who who buys it and he goes you know mostly old white people wow and he goes thank god for them yeah because if not for them like i wouldn't be able and that was powerful to me. And and what he told me, he told me a story. He said he was part of a group show and they had an opening and a bunch of people showed up at the opening, but there were just two black people who came to the opening and they, and they showed up at the end. But he said the fact that they were there and saw his art like meant a lot to him. Okay. And so based on that conversation, I ended up starting a group uh, here in L.A. called Coal. Okay, yeah. C-O-A-L. Mm-hmm. Stands for, well, it's obviously, you know, coal, the color <laughs> black. It's coal, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the drawing medium. But, it, but what it stands for is community of art lovers. Nice. And this was a group that every time there was a, you know, really a person of color who was having an opening in, in L.A., we would show up, we'd mm. roll deep. Oh, nice. And Aww. we would show up to show our support. And right. it was it was really through that experience. Again, we didn't, I didn't get into this initially through loving art. I got into this <laughs> loving black people and, <laughs> and wanting to support I mean, them hey, and, and wanting go. them to have like, you know, the chance that you wanted, right? When yeah. you were stuck at this at this law firm mm-hmm. hustle. So, yeah. so over time- it's a very we, natural progression, sounds like. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what happened is we got to know the artist and mm-hmm. we got to know their stories. And for me, I'm not someone who can look at a, at a, a painting, as beautiful as a painting is, I can't look at a painting on the wall and, and be taken by it. But if the artist is there and the artist tells me what was mm-hmm. going on in his or her life and what they're trying to represent and like, once you get under like the layers and you see where the inspiration's coming from, I fall in love with that piece okay. right away. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and so we started A, supporting these young people who were trying to pursue their artistic dreams, B, falling in love with the experience and the storytelling and the context. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we started. Yeah. And what really gives us joy is is getting to know the artists and connecting them with other artists and other collectors and other patrons and museums and galleries. And so, yeah, it's something we're fired. I love it. This where lottery exists. I don't want to be a doctor scientist. I'd rather make a flick together million hits. Then maybe I can sit at table with a hit. Make her move or shake her, shape the influence in business and leave a mark before my heart get devilish. Write and sell a ship, excel in elements and never sell my soul for it. I write and sell a ship, excel in elements and never ever. We are now 25 years out of college. Hard to believe. And that time frame, what have been some pivotal moments for you? You know, health hit my life, you know, kind of early. So I graduated, we graduated in 97, and I got married shortly thereafter. Right. And in 2001, my first child was born, George Clayton Fothery IV, uh, who goes by Clayton. Mm. And believe it or not, it was actually at our five-year reunion for Harvard, he was four months old. 
my wife, Azita, and I flew out to Boston and we took our newborn baby there. And it was at that reunion was the first time that we noticed him having seizures. At the time, we didn't know that's what it was. We, we saw him doing this kind of weird, kind of like freezing, like being mesmerized. And we thought it maybe it was the, the jet lag or, okay. the, or the flight. But so, yeah. So when I was five years out of college, I had my first son and he developed a, a really, a really rare and catastrophic epilepsy. Okay. He's had seizures basically every day of his life. Mm. Um, as an infant, he would have hundreds of seizures a day. Wow. Today, he's 20 years old. He has anywhere between a half a dozen and a dozen seizures a day on a good day. And as a result, it's taken a dramatic toll on his mental development. And so he'll, you know, he'll live with us forever. He depends on us for for feeding and and toileting and mm. and kind of care and and so I had a very early kind of earlier than most I know a lot of us are at the ages now where we're dealing with aging parents yeah. and, and and that but early on I was introduced to the way that health can impact what's going on in your life and I'll tell you I mean I you know I want to keep it real on this I'll tell you initially it was very devastating mm. I mean I had like a lot of us have I had this image of of who my first son would be. Absolutely. Um, I had this idea of him, you know, playing soccer like mm. I played and going to Harvard mm-hmm. and, you know, being a, a badass professional. <laughs> and, and um, you know, the universe had a different plan. And so, you know, I think initially the first response you have is really one of mourning. Yeah. Um, you know, the child that you thought you would have and you didn't have. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, though, Crescent, no question, having Clayton in my life and with his health challenges, it's easily, you know, the greatest blessing I've, I've ever received. I mean, being wow. his father has taught me patience and compassion mm. and understanding. And it's really, you know, it's made me, uh, I think, a much better person than the person that I <laughs> Than the trajectory I was I was on, so I'm um, I'm so grateful for being chosen to be his father. It's also look, it's also it's given me the the kind of strength to deal with other things. Again, we're talking about health, so mm-hmm. um, you know, three years ago, my wife, we've been together 27 years now, but wow. three years ago, she was diagnosed with a very advanced uh, cancer in her throat. Wow. And, you know, she underwent radiation and, and, and surgery and, and you just, you know, this, this issue of health, it's so, it helps you appreciate how fragile things Mm, are. Yes. And, and for me, at least it's helped me to really develop a sense of, of gratitude and living in the moment and, and being appreciative for the time we have. I know you've had um, challenges with health as well. So Absolutely. So for me, a pivotal moment was when I was diagnosed with depression. Mm-hmm. And it happened while I was, when I started at my law firm in, in New York after law school. And it's two steps. It was one, the diagnosis, which I did not accept right away. Mm-hmm. So the second step was acceptance of yeah. this. You know, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer when I was 12. And so I get to law school and I'm like, hmm, I don't know. The way the system works <laughs> doesn't really, it's not really set up for poor people. It's not set up for black people. 
And so I got, I became very disillusioned. Mm. And then also the relationship that I had been in for, at that point, four and a half years exploded. Like, it was a horrible, terrible ending <laughs> to that. So, but it, what it made me do was sort of take stock of, like, what was happening around me. Um, and I was like, I don't like law school. And granted, no one likes first year law school. Like, it fucking sucks. Like, let's keep it 100. But at the same time, I was like, I, it's not that I don't like it. I'm just like, there's nothing about this that I want to continue to pursue. But more to the point, what's supposed to happen after I graduate? I'm not interested in that either. Yeah, it wasn't your calling. No. But again, I've been on this trajectory since I was 12. That's right. So I'm just like, what, what do I do next? And... Over the summer, you know, I got the summer job at a law firm actually in Chicago. And I ended up taking an acting class over that summer. And I'm like, yo. I How did you peaked. fit that into your, with I, your summer internship? Well, because <laughs> it was summer. And so, like, right. it wasn't as hectic. And I was a summer associate. So they were like, all right, okay. you know, we're still kind of wooing you a okay. little bit. Uh, so, yeah. So I was able to kind of slide that in there on Saturdays. But, yeah, but I, like, I had, there was a certain amount of peace that I had been missing. I was like, oh, this feels nice. So then I was on a fence for like a couple of weeks. I'm like, am I going back to law school? Am I going to drop out of law school? Like, what, what, is, what could that look like? And I was like, okay, first of all, you don't have a trust fund, bitch. So <laughs> you're like, you're not going to drop out of law school and be an actress. Like, what the fuck is that? Like, are you insane? That was that little voice. I, right. Like, and mind you, I will say this, though. My mother had my back. Like, she was like, yeah. you should do what makes you happy. I was like, yeah, that's cool, but we're poor, right? So like, <laughs> I was like, I need to just, I need to see this through and then figure it out. Um, so I finish, I, you know, I go back to law school and start my second year. And I will say this, I love to learn. So, you know, I feel like what law school teaches you in terms of how to think was great. It was invaluable. That, that price tag, though, for law school, a little hectic. So I finished school. I go to a law firm in New York. And very, very early in, I am miserable. Yeah. Like, I'm crying on Sunday nights as the week is about to start because I'm dreading it. I have no control over my life. Yeah. Right? Like, and that that was the biggest issue. Yeah. yeah. Like, Welcome you couldn't to, make plans. Welcome to first-year associate. Exactly. Yeah. Right? And so, and I, you know, I knew this going in, but, like, being in it yeah. just became really hard. I was angry all the time. Like, I wasn't me. Yeah. And people noticed it. Like, my friends are like, yo, what the fuck? And I'm just like, I, I hate life right now. That's right. And I just was like, this, this, this can't be how you're supposed to live. Like, I was like, this doesn't seem right. I'm like, I've spent all this time studying, right? I've spent all this time going to these great schools, and I am miserable. This, this cannot be right. I remember I had the stuffed animal. It was a cat, like a stuffed animal <laughs> cat in my office. And when you touched it, it was like, rrr, <laughs> Because that's how I felt. Like, this shit was funny. Like, dark humor. Like, gallows humor. So, I have other Black female attorney friends. They referred me to a therapist. Black woman. And she, too, had been in corporate America Mm. and realized, yo, I need to open up this practice because my sisters need this. And so, I go to see her for the first time. And I'm sitting on the lounge, the chase situation. And I start talking. And within 10 minutes, I'm just like sobbing, yeah. right? As I'm just trying yeah. to tell her like what I'm dealing with. 15, maybe 20 minutes in, she goes, okay, so you're depressed. And I was like, nope, no, I'm not. No, I reject that. I don't have time for that. No, no, no. And she was like, okay, girl. Yeah. <laughs> like, all right. And so, you know, it was an hour session. And so we get to the end of it. And she was like, yeah, I hope you come back. And I was like, no. I, and I, it, was a, it was good to just at, at a minimum get yeah, that good. much out. And so I do, I go see her the following week and 
I scheduled this appointment for 6 p.m. because she had late night, she had evening appointments because she knew the schedule, right? right? right. I leave work to go see her, see her for an hour. I come back to work, close some shit out, go home. I get back to work the next morning, dumb early. I have a fucking email from a junior, like a mid-level associate who's getting in my ass about leaving at 5.30 to go to a doctor's appointment. Like literally the email's like, you need to reschedule your doctor's appointments, la 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 la. Okay, well at least least that made it clear. Oh, absolutely, right, yes. Right. So I get up, (laughs) I read this email, I get up, I go to my partner's office and I go, I have to take a medical leave of absence. And he, you know, it's a law firm, right? So as soon as you say medical, they're, yeah, like, yeah. they're like, are you leaving right. now? Like, what's, that, what's yeah. happening, right? <laughs> Can we call you a car? <laughs> right. I was like, no, I'll wrap up what I have. And I did. And that was the first time that I had rest. Like that I had, again, that piece that I had found like that one summer yeah. came back to me. I was like, yo, what, what is, what the fuck? How, how can I, how can I keep this? But I was like, you know what? Let me just be present, stay in this, enjoy it while I can. And so, you know, I was like, all right, well, I'm running out of money, so I got to go back. <laughs> I go back to the firm. So I negotiated to work part-time, which was a 40-hour week instead of an 80-hour <laughs> week. Yes, case. if you don't know about law firm life. Go so, so I was still getting my, like, baseline six figures, and I, you know, had my health care. And, you know, I made it work for another maybe eight to nine months, nine to ten months. Found myself on the stairwell sobbing again, like at the office. And I was like, I got to go. Yeah. I was like, this is not even just unhealthy. Like, I'm not going to survive if I stay in this environment. And I remember talking to a partner. He was like, oh, there's a lot of people here who couldn't get through the day without their meds. I was like, what the fuck is that? Like, how is that? Why are you living that way? You don't want to do that. So this whole quarter life crisis, been there, done that. This whole work life balance, that's just not new. (laughs) Like, I was on it early, but just I was alone. And so I stopped being a lawyer and I moved out to L.A. shortly thereafter. But mind you, I'm still not accepting that I have depression. Like I was like, it was a work, you know, I had to get out of that job. And so at different times along the last 25 years, there have been other incidents that have triggered it. Hmm. And my father passed away in 2005. That was huge. I started taking medication for the first time then. And so, but here's the thing, I only took it for like a year. I was like, okay, I'm good, right? Like, I was, thank you, stabilize, I'm good. And so that's what would happen periodically. I would take it when I wasn't feeling well, but then I would stop. And you know, I actually don't remember like exactly the moment where I was like, okay, bitch, <laughs> this, you need to take this regularly. Like, I, you, I was like, you, I have to stabilize because what would happen is I would have these extreme highs and then these like extreme lows. I see. And I realized that I was losing time. Like I would like days would go by a week, two weeks where I I could not get anything done. Like I was just sort of like barely functioning. And I was like, again, this is not a way to live. And so I just had to accept. I was like, you have depression. You depression. You have to treat this like you would any other health issue. right. right? right. And take care of it. And so I got my medication together, stayed on it consistently. I'm aware of my triggers. You know, I try to control what I can control and what I can't. Well, fuck it. <laughs> but look, I mean, Crescent, I mean, what I admire, it's not just the, the, you know, the medication regime, but the decision to, like, leave a career that you at least thought you had been training for your entire life up to that point. I mean, to me, that, I mean, that takes real, real courage and real commitment. And I think there's a lot of folks who, you know, see themselves 
pursuing a, a certain career and trajectory and they just get locked into it. And so I admire the fact that you early on recognize, you know what, this may be for some folks, but it's not for me. And you prioritize your your health and your happiness. And, you know, I, I hope um, that folks listen to that and they and they, you know, can follow that example. So thanks for doing that. No, I and that's the thing. Like, it's only been recently where I've been more comfortable talking about it. It's important. Yeah. It's like important. I just and granted, it's a I don't even want to use the word fashionable now. It's a lot more acceptable. Like I definitely yeah. feel like Gen Z and millennials yeah, are like, helping. yo, I got my therapist on speed dial. Yeah. Right. Like at the time, first of all, I have a great education, right? Like I have a great family and friends. I'm cute. I was like, I can't be depressed. Like that's yeah. I'm not allowed yeah. Yeah. to be depressed. Yeah. And again, I just I had to accept it and understand, no, this is an issue you have to deal with if you expect to continue to like move forward. You're, you're right though. Like I'm excited, like the values are changing a little bit. Like yes. I felt like when we came up, it was like exhaustion was like a badge you wore. Oh my of, God. Of like with pride, right? right. And now people are like, you know, like mental health and <laughs> happiness. Yes. Are, like it's funny, I've, I've got a lot of partners at my firm and sometimes folks complain about the younger generation, how they don't want to work and how they, and I'm like, I just want them to hurry up and be in charge. I know, right? I'm, I want to work for them. Right? right? Because they got a better set of priorities than well, I had when I was coming up. Because so. for me, what I realized, I'm like, I have no problem working hard, right? If it's if I'm working hard on something that makes sense to me and that yeah. is part of a good team and we're all flowing, but just to be fucking working hard, just to be That's working right. hard is That's bullshit. Right. Like That's that right. is not okay. Yeah. Like life is too short. It was a couple years ago where I was just like, yo, like how old am I? What the fuck? Right? Like it was just like this realization that you are now at a certain age and certain things not being exactly, for me at least, certain things not being the way I thought they were going to be, right? Like not being at a particular place in my life where I thought I would be by this point and and trying to manage that. And for me, managing it with also depression, right? Like this, this was a trigger. Of course. And so I kind of had to struggle for a while. And then the pandemic, I mean, look, I was already kind of in a certain headspace. The pandemic obviously made everything slow down even it's more so. But it, it was really helpful for me. I got a dog. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was able to kind of take stock a little bit better and realize the things that I did want. I was like, okay, I'm not going to be able to make those things happen overnight. So I got a little bit better about pacing and also just, again, just being completely legitimate and honest with myself. All right, I can only control myself and my actions. And so being very deliberate about certain steps that I was taking going forward and also asking for help. Yeah. Like literally, like Key. acknowledging like, yo, Key. I'm struggling and I need help or, you know, I'm trying to make a move in this other direction, asking for help. And so that's been a huge strategy for me of dealing with this, leaning on my friends, like taking time. And I think honestly, for a long time, I was just surviving. Like it wasn't because of the, you know, me moving away from being a lawyer and just sort of this very crazy like journey that I've been on. I didn't have a lot of stability. And so I finally asked, I was like, bitch, you need to live, right? Yeah. So I was just like, okay, stop the surviving mode and just start living and having fun and finding joy and hanging with your friends. And so that has made a huge difference in terms of navigating this midlife situation. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? I think I'm on probably my third midlife crisis okay, now. Yeah, I'm, fair. I'm wondering... <laughs> I'm wondering, like, when when am I going to get through them? But look, Crescent, like, exactly what you said, I think, there's a couple of things for me. One, 
it is so helpful for me to hear you talk about that. Yeah, right. Because you, we feel like we feel like, oh shit, I'm the only person going through this shit, and right? that that just can't be right. No. But the fact that you put a name on it and you put it out there, and we can discuss it, and we can like, at some point, laugh about it. Uh, yeah, hugely helpful. <laughs> For me, what's got me through it is is just is just the power of friendship. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. The power of being around people who love you and who you love mm-hmm. and kind of their empathy and their sympathy and their support has really been the key. And so yeah. for me it's just and but but the thing is like we're busy, we've got Absolutely. you know, we've got all these like competing priorities, Absolutely. we're all hustling. Yeah. And so what it really is for me is like you gotta prioritize these yep. friendships, right? Absolutely. Like it's like it's like everything else in your life. Like it, you know, you you get out what you put in and it takes time and it takes work. And so we've been very conscious and very deliberate about creating and being, you know, protective mm-hmm. about the time and the space that we create in our lives for friendships. What would you tell 18-year-old George? I'm not sure I would talk to 18-year-old George. I'm not sure I'd want anything to do. And and for all of you who are coming to reunion who did talk with 18-year-old George, let me let me apologize. And let me say thank you for the charity. Um, oh my God. You know, look, I think honestly, I mean, I've always been in a rush. Okay. Right. I've always been impatient. I've mm-hmm. always been like, okay, what's the, you know, I'm going to do this well so I can get to that. And then okay. once I get that, I'll try to get to there. And I think what I would, tell myself 25 years ago is it's okay to take your time it's okay to not to not go on the straight direct route it's okay to to take a detour i've got a confidence and i think we all need to have a confidence that like we're going to end up where we're supposed to be mm-hmm. and we're all going to take a different path getting there and so i think the advice i'd give myself is you know it's okay to explore it's okay to be distracted mm-hmm. you know it's okay to not follow what everybody else is doing you're mm-hmm. going to end up where you're supposed to end up and when you get there you're going to have a different set of experiences and you're going to have developed a, a separate set of skills that they're going to you know create an advantage in some areas yeah, and so absolutely. and so take your time follow your heart follow your passion <laughs> and you're going to end up where you need to be how about how about you what I, would you tell you know what actually kind of similar in that the detour part because like i said i was committed to being a lawyer when i was 12 but then along the way i'm discovering other passions and likes mm-hmm. like i was i've always been a really strong writer you know i was introduced to theater freshman year i was doing this kind of talk show thing in high school and but I was just like oh that was just a hobby yeah. like I just yeah. I wish I had given myself permission to just explore what I was legitimately passionate about yeah. and not being like no no you said you're going to do this so we have to stick to this so yeah I think that's the, what I would tell 18 good, Crescent and also stop dating that guy <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, good news guy. is it's not too late for that advice I right? know we should, we should yeah. do this. I mean I still look good I don't know what you're talking about this is awesome. This Thank is you, a lot of fun. George. Thank you for inviting me. Really an honor. And I can't wait to see everybody. That's the key to the happiness once you mention. If you're doing what you love, you actually find your treasure. And be blessed forever. Now let's say it together. We blessed forever. Remember that and keep it in the forefront of every action. Taking with ambition at the door.